With that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. And we're going to be studying a very important passage today regarding how do we walk through conflicts within the church of God? How do we settle disputes? We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, and it says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So we have such cases. Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But yourself wrong and defraud even your own brothers. It's about in the word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this passage. We know, Lord, that we have much to learn here because we do have conflicts in our lives and sometimes with individuals within the church of God. And we are troubled at times in how we are to handle these conflicts, yet this passage is very clear to us how we should. We pray, Father, that you would just instill us with the Holy Spirit so that we would accept what you have to say with humility and actually live it out uh, with thankfulness towards you. We know, Lord, that whatever you commanded us to do is for our good, and let us believe that first, and let us then dive into your word to see what you have to say to us. We thank you, Lord. Change our lives according to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the hallmarks of the American justice system is that you can sue any t with anyone at any time for any reason. And one of the setbacks, perhaps the greatest setback of the American legal system, is that you can sue anyone for anything for any reason. In 2005, there's a man named Roy Pearson. He was a judge in the D.C. courts, and he sued a dry cleaning shop for lost pants. This dry cleaning shop is owned by two people who are husband and wife, Su Jing Nam and Ki Wai Chung. And they lost his pants perhaps for a day or two. Pearson brought his pants to this dry cleaning shop for cleaning, and it was accidentally sent to another place, and they weren't able to fulfill this request of returning it on the same day or the day after. They waited a couple more days to get his pants back and return to the owner. However, Pearson was not satisfied with this service. He requested a compensation of over $1,000 with his mistake made by the dry cleaners. The Chungs, of course, refused to pay $1,000 or this fee of over $1,000. And so Pearson, in return, sued them for an amount of $64 million dollars for being unsatisfied with their service. What he said was that the Chunks had in the storefront on the window this sign says satisfaction guaranteed. And he wasn't satisfied, so therefore he's suing them for false advertising. The Chunks eventually won. The judges threw out the case. However, in this particular court case, the Chunks have racked up $83,000 of court fees, of which they were able to get some of it returned to them through a fundraising campaign but because of this emotional stress and loss of revenue, he, they eventually closed down their dry cleaning shop. Frivolous lawsuits are everywhere in our country. 
You have individuals that sued Google for Google Maps telling her that she should walk on the freeway to get to her destination. You have individuals suing Budweiser for not being able to attract young and beautiful women for drinking their beer as the advertisements seem to tell him that he should be able to. Frivolous lawsuits are everywhere. And these lawsuits are on the basis of one's perception of rights and justice, which are heavily distorted. We think we deserve things. <clears throat> we think that we deserve certain kind of rights. However, whatever we think we deserve, whatever we think is due ours, certainly is not ours at all because we have a distorted view of our rights in our minds. Our God, however, does not have such distorted view. In the Bible, we see that our God is perfectly right, perfectly just. His standards are always correct. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, it says regarding God that our God is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. Now, we were such people as well because God first created us to be just and right. Because according to Psalm chapter 11, verse 7, it says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. We were originally in the garden of God. We were originally in the presence of God, and therefore we had to be righteous. However, we sinned against God. We chose to disobey Him. And the moment that we disobeyed God, sin entered into our lives. Sin nature entered into our lives, and we begin to have a faulty perception of ourselves and faulty perception of God. We begin to care more about our own perception of rights instead of the glory and the righteousness of God. When God asked Adam, why did you do this? And how did you sin against him? Adam, instead of confessing to God, instead of caring for the glory of God, he said this to save himself. He said this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. It wasn't my fault. It was the woman's fault. It was her problem. When God asked the woman what happened, the woman said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, the serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It wasn't my fault, God. It was a serpent's fault. It was a devil's fault. The devil made me do it. They tried to get out of it, not addressing the very fact that they are sinners in need of God's grace. They're simply seeking to get out of the trouble which they're in. Our God, in His gracious nature, His love for us, decided to deal with sin on His own. You see, we chose to not deal with it. We chose to blame other people for our sins and our problems. Our God chose to take the problem upon Himself by making the problem His. He did so through the Son, Jesus Christ, who came and gave His life for us. Jesus took our punishment for us on the cross, and he gave his perfect righteousness, which he lived, so that we would have his righteousness, which is in order, which is necessary in order for us to be in the presence of God. See, we would not have that righteousness in ourselves, but Jesus gave it to us. We would not be able to pay for the punishment which is due us for our sins, but Jesus paid it for us. Not only so, he rose from the dead to show us that there is eternal life in him if we believe unto him. This is the gracious nature of God. And today, as we read this passage, we're going to see how believers are to respond to this gracious gift of God. You see, each one of us, we've sinned against God. 
And not only have we sinned against God, we also sin against other people. Even within the church of God, each one of us are not perfect. We might sin against each other from time to time. But the reality of God's salvation for us, the reality of what God's done for us should impact how we respond to the sins which other people have sinned against us. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to other people who have grievances against us? Or how do we respond to other people who we have sinned against? This is the passage which we're going to read about today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, we're going to see God's ways of working through dispute. How do we work through dispute within the church of God? The three principles which we're going to see here. The first principle is this. We need to work through disputes by displaying the gospel of God itself. We need to work through disputes by displaying the very gospel of God. We're going to see this in verse 1. And it says, <clears throat> Which one of you has grievance against another? Does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now as we read this passage, we're seeing Paul himself rebuking the Corinthian church. He's been writing this lengthy letter encouraging the church to, be whole, to live holy lives before the Lord. Now, this church has lots of problems. Indeed, it has lots of problems. From chapter 1 to chapter 4, read about the problem of disunity. The people who are in this church who are honoring themselves, who are giving accolades to themselves, who are praising themselves, and who are bringing attention to themselves instead of bringing attention to God. These are the people who are power centers of the church, who are arrogant people, who are causing problems within the church. Paul himself said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 to 4. Say, you are still of the flesh, for while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When, when, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? Pride is not something that should be part of our church. Pride and arrogance is not something that should be part of God's church. We should be pointing each other to Jesus and not ourselves. That is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We're to boast in Christ and Christ alone. We're to bring people to see Jesus and not our own good works, not how good we are, not how wonderful we are, or not what we've done for the church. We're to let people see Jesus himself. Not only was the problem of disunity within the church, there also was the problem of sexual immorality within the church. This is something that we see in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says this. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The man who's having sexual relationship with his stepmother. And it's something that is horrendous in light of God's holiness. So Paul says you need to put this person away from God's church because this person refused to repent. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, Paul says this, Do you not know that an unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor a man who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul is saying this, you may be this in the past. You may have lived a life of sexual immorality in the past, but that is not you anymore. This is something that you should put away the moment that you become a Christian. The moment that you belong to the church of God, you need to put away any immorality from your lives. You're washed, you're cleansed, you're sanctified. This is not who you are anymore. Now, the church has not put that away. There's immorality in the church, there's pride in the church. 
And we know that a church that has morality and pride is an unhealthy church. In fact, these two characteristics are the characteristics that Apostle John even warned about in his letter in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, John said this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father but from the world. He says this, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh are all from the world. So here in the church of Corinth, you already see two things, the pride of life and also the lust of the flesh, the sexual morality within the church. There's also perhaps, as we can imagine, a lust of the eyes as well. And so a church with so many problems, you imagine that the church would have a lot of grievances because each person are about themselves instead of about God. And if you're about yourself, you're going to be fighting with each other all the time. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 1. When one of you have grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? There's problem within the church. There's grievance within the church. People arguing with the church within the church all over the place. Now, I can imagine the reason why people are arguing with each other is because the church has not dealt with the issue adequately. There's arrogance within the church. People are afraid of these power centers, key power holders within the church. They're sinners, but people refuse to address them because they're important people within the church. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19, But I'll come to you soon, the Lord wills, and we'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Paul is saying they're arrogant people in the church. And you refuse to address them, refuse to confront them in their sins. But I'm not afraid. I'm going to address them. I'm going to confront them when I come. And also 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, this man who has father's wife. And you're arrogant, Paul says. You have not addressed his sin. You're allowing this person to be part of your congregation. Now imagine with a church that does not address sin, the church that does not work out the grievances between people, what people will do is that they will go out of the church. Say, I cannot get justice within the church, so what I'm going to do is that I'm going to get justice in the world. I'm going to go to the courts of the world. I'm going go to laws, uh, go to lawsuits within the world in front of unbelievers and try to get justice there because I'm not getting justice here. People are not addressing it here. So I have to go out. So partly this is the fall of the church, but also partly it's because the fall of the believers there. They don't understand what they actually are doing. Now, in the city of Corinth, there are many law cases going on all times. It's kind of the city of Los Angeles in our days as well. Perhaps even more. Because in the city of Corinth, in order for you to have a law case, even a small case, even the smallest set of cases, you have about 201 Jewers. In the bigger cases, you have about 2,000 to about 6,000 Jewers at a time. Now, granted, it was a kind of majority rule kind of situation as opposed to our land where you have 12 Jewers, everybody sort of had to work it out and agree with each other. But back in those days, the majority rule, you can have as many people as you want if you be on the Jewer for the larger cases. Now imagine how do you get so many people where these people aren't there for volunteer on a volunteer basis. So you have people in the marketplaces and they will look for jobs and people waiting around looking for people to hire them. When people are not going to hire them, then people from the courthouses will come out and say, hey, you want to be a juror? Do you want to be a juror? Oh, yeah, I'll be a juror. I'll be a juror. Everybody who is above 30 years old can be a juror. So you're a juror and say, you know what, I got nothing else to do, so I'm out just go there and be entertained by the problems of people of this world. It's kind of like Judge Judy kind of situation. You go to the court, they don't have TV, so you go to the court and look at the people, all the ridiculous people, ridiculous things that people are arguing about. Just go there and just make sense of the situation and try to feel like we don't struggle with this kind of thing, so we can kind of judge them based on what we see. So the Corinthian church are allowing themselves to be under this kind of judgment, to be entertainment for people of this world. And there's the reason why. The reason is because it's not being done within the church of God in a loving and a compassionate way. People are not addressing sin within the church. Now, grievances are not necessarily things of sexual immorality or things of pride, which we see here, but it could be almost anything. 
But some people owe you money. Some people said a hurtful word to you. Somebody done some hurtful action to you. Somebody broke their promise to you. And instead of addressing this within the church of God, what you're doing is that you're bringing to the courts of the world to get it addressed. Now, Paul says here in verse 1, says, when you have grievance against another person, does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So he gives two people, unrighteous and the saints. You say, well, who are those two people? These are positional terms. It's not necessarily saying that the people of the world are unrighteous in terms of their judgment. They could perhaps, perhaps make some good judgment. They could perhaps make some righteous judgment. They're unrighteous because they had not been saved in comparison with the saints. You're either a saint or you're an ant, meaning that you're a saint or you're not. But unrighteous are not those who are believers, those who are perhaps able to give some kind of judge, judgment, just judgment, people who could return your stuff, people who could say, well, you owe this person this amount of money, so you should return it, people who could exact some kind of just punishment for, just crime, well, for crimes which are committed. But what they will not be able to do is this. What they will not be able to do is tell you what God wants you to do. You see, what God wants you to do is this. God wants you to display mercy and grace and a compassionate heart and forgiveness to another person. No judge in this world will tell you to forgive another person. That is not their role, right? No judge will appear before the world and they will judge and say, well, I think you should forgive the other person. That is not what a judge will do, but yet this is what God does. This is what God does to us. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. God commands us to do this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgives you. When God forgives us, there is an impact to our lives as far as how we're to treat another person. John chapter 15, verse 12 to 13, Jesus commanded us this, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Not only are you to not hold your brother in such a way that you're squeezing your brother to the last drop. You are actually going to lay down your life to, for your brother. Even when your brother sins against you, you're willing to sacrifice, willing to let go of your rights. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus said this again. If you do not forgive others of the trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. Your salvation is dependent upon your willingness to forgive another brother. Now, none of this will be taught to you in a human court. You go to court outside of this, you go to court in a civil lawsuit here in America, no judge will explain this to you. And yet, this is what God wants you to do. This is so clearly displayed in Jesus' illustration in Matthew chapter 18 when Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, seven times, 70 times. You to forgive brother as long as it takes you to call your brother to repentance or to love your brother in the way that God calls you to. And Jesus gave this illustration in Matthew chapter 18. He said, there's an unmerciful servant, a particular servant that owed the masters 10,000 talents. Now, one talent is a lot of money already. One talent is about one year's worth wage. 10,000 talents, you can consider it to be, what, $600 million if you make $60,000 a year, if that's your wage. It's a lot of money, a lot of money. So this person couldn't pay for it. So what did he say? He said to the master, Master, would you give me some time? We'll pay it back. And master was actually very compassionate to the servant and said to him in Matthew chapter 18, verse 27, actually did this to him, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of the debt, saying, you don't have to pay this back to me anymore. I forgive you. You're free to go. Now the servant 
did something else to another servant who came to meet him the, other, the next day or shortly after. This other servant, who is also a fellow servant, owed this servant who had just been forgiven 100 denarii. 100 denarii is a lot of money, too. One denarii is about one day's work wage. 100 denarii, you say, well, it's about $20,000. It's a lot of money. It's not as much as $600 million, but it's still a lot. Now, the servant did not regard how much he had been forgiven by God, did this to his fellow servant. He threw him into jail, saying, you know what? I will not forgive you. By throwing this person into jail, person will not ever have the opportunity to return back to him because he can't work anymore. He was unmerciful. So what did the master do? In Matthew chapter 18, verse 32 to 33, the master summoned this unmerciful servant and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgive you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? It's God's logic. But that's not the logic of the courts, right? Just because and the person going to say, well, you know, God, you forgive me, but what I do with the other person, that's my business, right? I mean, that's the way I always think of it. Like, just because someone forgive you doesn't mean that you have to forgive the other person. These are two separate issues. They are, according to the human court, are they not? But to God, they're not. To God, they're the same issue. God says this, the way I treat you is the way that you should treat other people. That is why in verse 1, Paul says, how dare you? How dare you chase down another brother, squeeze another brother like you do while I did not do the same thing to you? How dare you seek for recompense in a way that is unmerciful while I did not do the same to you? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 4, Paul says this, as reflection of God's grace and mercy in our lives, we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves, that each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're to consider other people to be more important than ourselves. Consider other people's needs and rights and, 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 and what their, their, their lives are to be more important than our own needs and rights and what our lives are. We're to love them even to a degree of sacrificing our own rights. This is how you display the gospel. This is how you settle disputes within the church of God. You will not find this in the court of law, but yet this is what God calls you to do. We need to reflect upon the gospel when we settle disputes. When you have a grievance in the brother, you're not just thinking about what I can get out of this, how I can get my stuff back, but you're thinking about how can God be glorified and how can the gospel of God be displayed in this particular situation. That's what God's calling us to. It's very anti-American, is it? But it's what is biblical. So we see here the first principle is that we need to display the gospel. But people might ask, well, does that mean I could let everything go? Other people sin against me, I don't get my stuff back. You know, I just let it brush under the rug and just kind of forget about it. Is what you're saying? No, actually, this is not what I'm saying. There is wisdom. There's teeth to discipline within the church as well when you settle disputes within the church of God. We're going to see this in verse 2 to 6. We're to settle disputes with God's wisdom. <clears throat> in verse 2, it says this. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? 
Paul is saying this, you are more than capable to settle disputes within the church because God has given you wisdom to do so. He gives them a preview of what's going to happen in eternity. He says that you will judge the world. You will judge angels. In fact, those of you who are believers, you will sit with Christ on the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus said, There's the one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and I will conquer as, as I also conquer and sat down with my father on his throne. We're going to sit with Jesus. Now I know exactly how it's going to play out. Maybe, just going, maybe Jesus is going to give to us some kind of responsibility, or maybe we're just going to say, Yes, Jesus, what you said is true. We're going to sit with Jesus while Jesus judges the nations. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. Again, similar verse. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. We'll be given some kind of authority over the nations, over, over the nations that God is judging. Not only will we judge as Jesus judged, we're also going to be judging angels. This is in verse 3. We're going to judge angels. In fact, this is something that is described to us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, regarding angels who are demonic, who are kept for the day of judgment. It says this, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. They're, chained, they're angels who, are committed, who committed sins against God were chained for judgment. And Paul is saying here in verse 3 that we're going to be judging those angels. Now, this is something for us to consider and sometimes for us to consider that we might feel we're inaccurate to do so because we feel like our lives are not that much better because we sin against God. And it's true. But you know what? You're going to be given that resurrected body. You're going to be given that resurrected mind of uh, a resurrected body in which you are going to perfectly do everything that God calls you to do. In fact, you'll be made more like him. You may be completely like God. In that day, you will not sin again. In that day, you will have the perfect knowledge of God. So you will not feel that you are not adequate to judge angels and judge the world when that day comes. You will judge. You will judge in perfect confidence. Now, before we even get there, there's a glimpse of us having that already in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9, it says that when we know in part, we prophesy in part. We do know something today. We do have the wisdom of God today to some degree. Now, it's not perfect, but it is there. James chapter 3, verse 17 through 18, James says to us this, The wisdom from above, from God, is first pure and peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James saying this, you do know what wisdom of God is because you know that it's righteousness, you know that it's peace, you know it's gentleness, you know it's, uh, it's mercy, you know that's what wisdom of God is all about. You have a sense of the wisdom of God in your lives today. Now, you may not know it perfectly, but you do have an idea, and you do practice it. In fact, if you ask God for more wisdom, God will give it to you. James chapter 1, verse 5, If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is how spiritual maturity works. You may not be mature when you first got saved, but as you ask God for wisdom, as you work through these situations in life, you begin to get more wisdom and become more mature. And as you become more mature, you're able to assess situations in life with more accuracy in terms of how you're to do this for the glory of God. And the more that you are mature, the more that you're able to help other people. That is why in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, we see that church conflict resolution process. When the brother sins, you see that brother sins, you go and tell the brother what the sin is so the brother may repent. Because you are more mature, the more mature brother is to go to a brother who sinned and say, you know, I, I see that you sinned, and therefore let me tell you that you need to live your life in a certain way that honors the Lord. This is the responsibility of those who are mature in the Lord, who have wisdom to share. 
But if the brother doesn't listen to you, what will happen is that you would tell another brother or two other brothers to come and tell this brother who is in sin. Now you have double the wisdom, right? More people to come, more people will give input, more people to give advice to this brother who is in sin. The more wisdom in the world, and hopefully these two brothers, which you call our elders or leaders of the church, and able to offer some kind of advice like which you haven't offered, and give this brother who is in sin an opportunity to repent. The brother hears it from people who are mature. He repents. That's wonderful. That's how the wisdom of God works within the church of God to convince one another to follow Jesus. Now, if that didn't work, then you to tell it to the church. According to Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, the whole church comes around and counsels his brother with the wisdom which they have in the Lord to call this brother to repentance. So there's wisdom within the church of God. Now, this does not mean that we don't involve secular organization in the world if we have to, if we call to. There's certain times that even the church will have to rely on lawful authorities in the world. In the cases of sexual assault or in child molestation, we're not to just deal here within the church and not tell people in the, in, 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 in the, sec, uh, in, in the secular world, in the law enforcement, that this is happening and they need to, the people who have done this need to pay a price. They need to be paying a price as far as civil issues are concerned. But we're not to do it outside of where the decision is within the church. I mean, they have to go through the problems within the world. Yes, they have to be brought to the world. Their, their issues, if they broke the law, they had to be tried in the courts of the world. Yes, but within the courts of the church, within people of the church, we have to make our own decision. We have to discipline them as God calls us to discipline because the world is going to ask the church or ask this person, well, what has your church taught about this? What has your church done about this? And the person will say, well, nothing. And that will bring shame to the church. That will bring shame to the glory of God in terms of what God has done for us here in our church. That is why Paul says in verse 4 to verse 6, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Could it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? Paul says this, I say this to your shame, where you don't have an answer before unbelievers, why you're there and why the church is not responding to this particular issue. Why you need them in the first place? I kind of consider all the court cases in our world to be sort of shameful and funny and of a mockery to the people who are watching. You can think of Judge Judy. You can even think about the most recent case, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp case you've been watching on your phone, watching on YouTube, and you're just thinking, wow, these two people are kind of ridiculous, right? Oh, she's such a liar. Oh, he's such a liar. Oh, these two people are arguing about such stupid things. The world's mocking them. And imagine this is happening between two, two people who are believers in the world, I mean, in our church, two Christians. It will bring shame to the name of Christ. Now, I'm not just talking about us bringing this in front of the courthouse. I'm talking about us bringing the dirt of another Christian in front of public opinion in general. I mean, you might be talking dirt about a believer in front of your unbelieving friends, and your unbelieving friends are saying, yeah, that person is a, is a you know, blah, 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 and just kind of taking your side, and they're thinking, yeah, this is, yeah, he is that. But you're giving people all kinds of reasons not to believe in Jesus because you just did that. People are thinking our faith to be fake because the person calls himself a believer, and he gets to do that, and he gets away with it. Not just you talking to believers, the social media as well. You could post something negative about another believer on social media and bring that person to the open forum of public opinion. Other people are casting their criticism on this believer because of you. And this brings shame to Christ. People will not believe in Jesus because you did this. They will not. So what we need to do is this. We need to bring it to, within, bring it to the people within the church. 
This does not mean that we let sin slide. We're not going to let sin slide. We're not going to push it under the rug. But we need to bring it to the church so that church can actually deal with it in such a way that gives glory and honor to the Lord and calls his brother to repentance in a gentle and kind way. We need to actually face sin head on and actually address it in a way that we don't miss words. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, it says, We need to exhort one another every day, as long as called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're not going to let sin deceive people here in our church. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, we're to take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but rather, what? Expose them. We're to expose sin in the world. We're not just kind of, even within the church, we're not just going to brush it under the rug, oh, this is the brother, everybody likes the brother, everybody, we just want to be proud of trouble to his brother. No, we're going to actually expose them because we would not let sin just kind of be brushed under the rug within the church. Come and tell me. Not just me, but you got to tell that brother and bring that brother to other believers within the church who are godly so that we can actually have that church conflict resolution process where two or three other witnesses are brought to this brother and help this brother grow in the Lord. We're not going to brush it under the rug. We're actually going to address them, but we're going to address them in the way that God calls us to address them, in a way of restoring this brother to holiness and to the place where God wants him to be. Now, if the brother doesn't listen, at the very end of this process, what we need to do is to cast this brother out. Matthew chapter 18, verse 17 says that we're to see this person as a Gentile and a tax collector if this brother refused to repent. In doing so, we actually bring glory to God. We're making it very clear that the church does not tolerate sin. We do not tolerate sinful pattern behavior within any believer. We also are telling the world, look at us. We actually mean what we say. The believers of the church will recognize the person that's been tossed out from the church. The unbelievers of the world will also recognize that this church has, has conducted discipline with this believer, so-called believer, who's not a real believer because he's not living his life according to the ways of Jesus. So unbelievers now will actually respect God, respect the church, because the church is serious about sin in partaking this process of bringing this brother to holiness. So we see this, that in the church of God, we need to settle disputes God's way. We need to settle disputes in a way of displaying the gospel. We need to settle disputes in a way of displaying the wisdom of God. And thirdly, we need to settle disputes in such a way that we display love and patience so that this person can be brought to repentance. We're going to see in this verse 7 to verse 8. It says, To have lawsuits at all with another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But yourself wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is something that we got to come to recognition. Every time that you have brought lawsuit to another brother, you're going to have to see this brother again next Sunday, worshiping with him. What are you going to say? What are you going to do? You might have squeezed every penny from this brother. You might even defraud this brother and say, you know what, I got to cover my court costs, so you got to pay up for have this horrible thing done against me. You're going to have to pay more. This brother is knocked to the ground. This brother is now defeated. Yeah. I won. Next morning, next Sunday, you're sitting next to you singing songs of Jesus. What are you going to do? Are you going to go and say, hi, how's your day? How are you doing, brother? How's your Sunday? That's what Paul is saying. It's already a defeat for you. You won, but at what cost? You have broken relationships within the church. Now people are talking about it. Now you feel like you're an outcast. Now you feel like you can't come to this church anymore because you are doing this thing. Then Paul asks this something that we would not do in our American understanding. Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather suffer wrong? Wow. 
This is not something that you will encourage other people to do because it's not the American way. American way is get your, get your justice, get what is due, right? They owe you, so go get it. But actually, within the church, Paul is actually saying, hey, why don't you consider ab- absorbing the loss? Wow. Wait, you're telling me to absorb the loss? Who are you to tell me to absorb the loss? I'm American. I should not be told to absorb the loss. I earned this fair and square. But you know what? Paul is not the only one that tells you to absorb the loss. You know who else tells you to absorb the loss? Jesus. Jesus tells you to absorb the loss. Matthew chapter 5, verse 30 to 30, uh, 40. You ever heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Jesus says someone want to slap you on the right cheek. Or if they did slap you on the right cheek, what do you do? Do you punch him back? That's what we would do. It's like, yeah, I want to punch him back. I'm gonna, no one's going to take advantage of me. Like, no one's going to disrespect me like that. Jesus says, no, turn the other side. Someone takes your tunic, what do you do? He's going to take your cloak, let him have that as well. Now, this is not talking about Christian pacifism. There's no value in just being a pacifist yourself. But this is saying that as you are displaying this, you're actually displaying your love and care for another person so that the person can be brought to repentance. You love this brother enough to demonstrate that your stuff is not as important as this brother. This is something that we learn in the Old Testament as well. In the Old Testament, we have the year of Jubilee. You know what the Jubilee is? It really means ram's horn. That's what the word Jubilee means. So on the 10th month, and, and the 10th day of this particular year, the 7th month, rather, 10th day of the 7th month of this particular year, the ram's horn will be blown. And when the ram's horn is blown, the year Jubilee has started. Every 50 years, you have this year Jubilee. And what it is is that all of the properties that are gained through trade, through hard work, through your own ability and, and, and every possession that you have is returned to the original owner. See, God sets this year Jubilee as a way, which we don't have our country, as a way for us to narrow the gap between rich and the poor. When you don't have this, the rich get richer and poor get poor because you have more ability to be more rich when you are rich. So God says, you know, this is not what you should have in the land. You should have people able to care for each other in which we're not looking at our stuff as more important than people. So all the slaves get to go home. All the possessions are released. All the debts are released. The lands go back to the original owners. And the brothers are looking at the brother and saying, you know what? I love you. You and me are equals. I care for you more than I care about stuff. When we come to the New Testament, we find out that the year of Jubilee is actually a representation of what Christ has done for us and how that should reflect how we should do with other people in the Lord. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, that we're to what? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ and God forgive you. We're to forgive others because God forgave us. Every day is a year of jubilee for us in Christ. This is what God's teaching us. In fact, in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. We're to treat other people as God forgave us. As how God loved us. So the question is, what about my loss? If I have such a hard attitude toward other people, willing to surrender my rights, willing to surrender my possession, willing to just absorb the loss, what about my loss? How am I going to live if my brother just take advantage of me? 
If, if, if the brother hasn't come to repentance and, and I'm not going to seek after that immediately, I'm going to wait for his repentance. doesn't mean he's not going to make amends, but I'm going to wait for it. And what about in the meantime? What am I going to do? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? It's God to take care of you. God will take care of you while you live this out. Not only will he take care of you, he will more than abundantly reward you. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, Peter asked Jesus this question. See, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus answered him this in verse 29 in Matthew chapter 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You're going to receive hundredfolds in this life. God will not be outgiven. God will reward you. I consider all the times in my life where I have empty out my pockets and just didn't, didn't pursue it. Let the brother have it. And God actually repay me more than what I gave to him through other venues. Just didn't have to fight for it. So this is how we settle disputes within the church of God. Let God take care of us. It's God's way. So we see three principles. First principle is we need to let the gospel be displayed. Second principle is that we need to display God's wisdom. And third principle is this, we need to have forgiveness and grace in the way in which we settle our disputes. This is how we change lives. This is how lives are changed. I want to read you a particular story from Richard Warmbrand's book, In God's Underground. This is a scene which you might have seen in a movie night, which you had here just a couple months ago, where Sabina, the wife of Richard Warmbrand, was able to forgive the murder of her family, or possibly the murder of her family, Richard Warmbrand had first met this man. His name is Barilla. And Barilla is a communist soldier who killed a lot of Jews. He was boasting about how many Jews he killed. Now he invited Barilla to his home and played some Ukrainian tunes for this person because Barilla really wanted to hear Ukrainian melody. And Richard Warmbrand was able to play on the piano for him. Now this person's heart is a little softened because of the music. And Richard Warmbrand begins to share the gospel with him. This is what he said in his book, I'll read it to you. I stopped and turned to Barilla. I have something very important to say to you, I told him. Please speak, he said. If you look through that curtain, you can see someone is sleeping in the next room. It is my wife, Sabina. Her parents, her sister, and her 12-year-old brother have been killed with the rest of the family. You told me that you had killed hundreds of Jews near Galta, and that is where they were taken. Looking to his eyes, I added, you yourselves know or don't know who you have shot, so we can assume that you are the murderer of the family. He jumped up, his eyes blazing, looking as if he was about to strangle me. I held up my hand and said, now let's try an experiment. I shall wake my wife and tell her who you are and what you've done. I can tell you what ha will happen. My wife will not speak one word of reproach. She'll embrace you as if you were her brother. She'll bring you supper, the best thing she has in the house. Now, if Sabina, who is a sinner like us all, can forgive and love like this, imagine how Jesus, who is perfect love, can forgive and love you. Only turn to him, and everything you have done will be forgiven. Barilla was not heartless. We think he was consumed by guilt and misery at what he had done. And he has shaken his brutal talk at us as a crab shakes his claws. One tap his weak spot, and his defenses crumpled. The muse had already moved his heart, and now came, instead of attack, he expected words of forgiveness. His reaction was amazing. 
He jumped up and tore his collar at both hands so that his shirt was rent apart. Oh God, what should I do? What should I do? He cried. He put his head on his hands and sobbed noisily as he rocked himself back and forth. I'm a murderer. I'm soaked in blood. What shall I do? Tears ran down his cheeks. I cried, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command the devil of hatred to go out of your soul. Barilla fell down on his knees trembling and we began to pray aloud. He knew no prayers. He simply asked again and again for forgiveness and said that he hoped and knew that it would be granted. We were on our knees together for some time and we stood up and embraced each other. And I said, I promise to make an experiment and I shall keep my word. I went to the other room and found my wife still sleeping calmly. She was very weak and exhausted at the time. I walked her gently and said, there's a man here whom you must meet. We believe that he has murdered your family, but he has repented, and now he is our brother. She came out of her dressing gown and put on her arms to embrace him. Then both began to weep and kiss each other again and again. I've never seen bride and bridegroom kiss with such love and purity as his murderer and survivor among his victims. And I told, as I foretold, Sabina went to the kitchen to bring him food. And later on, we read about the story of Barilla in Richard Warmbrand's book, how Barilla changed and instead of killing people in that communist regime. And later on, to be in the Nazi war-torn area, he began to save lives in that same place. This is how love changes people. This is how forgiveness changes people. Will you be a part of this life in forgiving and having mercy on a brother in Christ? Luke chapter 6, verse 35 says this, But love your enemies and do good, and then expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. We love because God has first loved us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for this passage. We're thankful for your challenge to us in terms of how we need to interact with other people here in the body of Christ and other believers even outside the body of Christ who are believers but have offended us. We know, Lord, that the option always exists for us to rather to be wrong for the sake of the gospel. We pray, Father, that if we are wrong in such a way, Lord, that you would repay us according to what we have lost. You would give to us good things, bless us, so that we will continue to do this for your glory. But if we have brothers in our lives who hasn't repented, we pray that we also will confront this brother with sincerity and truth, allowing this brother to repent so the brother will not have sin pushed under the rug, but actually do repent because we love this brother in such a way, Lord, that we care about this brother, not just physically, but also spiritually. We thank you, Lord. We pray for this heart of purity in our lives, that we will be pure as Jesus is pure when we interact with the other brothers and sisters in the Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.